Good morning. Good to see you. If you're uh, new with us, I hope you're feeling welcome. Glad you're here. If you have a Bible or Bible app, and if you don't have either one of those, there should be one in the rack in front of you. And if you're a guest and you don't have a Bible of your own, you are welcome to make that yours. Put your name in it. Take it home. Love for you to have a Bible. Uh, Anyway, open to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 14. It's in the New Testament. There's also a sheet in your folder with the passage we're going to be looking at and room on the back for some notes. And we are going to be thinking about uh, something related to our gatherings like this for worship. I don't know if you've ever thought about it especially, but you may have noticed that when we do gather for worship, so much of what we do involves words, words that we speak and listen to, words in the language that we all share, which is English in our case, Uh, the, the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, the scripture that we read, the message that you and I hear, they're all full of words. Our worship is full of words. Have you ever wondered why that is? Why we worship in words we can all understand? Because there are other things we could do. You know, we could all sit and listen to some instrumental music. Or we could all pray silently. Or we could just open our Bibles and read them silently. Or we could gather around the communion table and all take communion without anybody saying anything. Or to bring up a controversy that goes all the way back to the church in Corinth around A.D. 55, which is a long time ago, we could seek to do something more spectacular. Specifically, we could have those who have the ability to speak in a language that they never learned and that no one else understands. We could ask them to pray and praise God in that language. Because after all, if worship is addressed to God, does it really matter if what comes out of our mouths can be understood by everyone else in the room? Well, some would say no. It doesn't matter. In fact, they would prefer we didn't make so much of words in our worship. Uh, Some would rather worship by walking silently through a forest or on a beach somewhere or listening to a pipe organ or or by praying to God in an unknown language. That, as I said, was a controversy when the, the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, and it's still with us today. The Christians in Corinth were very enthusiastic about the spiritual gift of speaking in an unlearned language. And they were so enthusiastic about it that they elevated it 
far above all the other spiritual gifts and abilities that the Holy Spirit gives, and they regarded it as the one unmistakable sign of true spirituality. That exercising that particular gift proved that you were filled with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are people with that same understanding today. But it's a mistake. And we have seen that in chapters 12 and 13, which we've looked at previously. By the way, if there's ever a message you miss and you want to go back and check it out, you can always go to our website, philida.org, and listen to it or watch it there. But in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says that there are many, many different abilities that the Holy Spirit gives the people of God, the people of Jesus, and he's the one who decides who gets what gift, and that there is not any one gift that everybody has or should have. Uh, we, with our gifts, we're like a body. The church is like a body, and we, with our gifts, our diverse gifts, are like the different parts of a body, and a body needs all of its diverse parts to work in order to be healthy, right? Says, Paul says, if the whole body were just one part, if the whole body were just an eye, or if the whole body were an ear, not only would that be really creepy, <laughs> that body would not be healthy. It couldn't do what a body is meant to do. And then we got to chapter 13, and we learned that no exercise of spiritual giftedness, no matter how impressive it looks, there is no exercise of giftedness that proves that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. What shows the Spirit's presence and power in your life is not giftedness, but love, as God defines it. Gifts and abilities are great. I mean, God gave them to us. But they're only great if they're exercised in Christ-like love. That is exactly what the Corinthians were not doing. Let me say it another way. A gift of the Spirit, apart from the fruit of the Spirit, that is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's from Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. A gift of the Spirit without the fruit of the Spirit does not prove that the Spirit is at work in your life right now. I'll say that again. A gift of the Spirit without the fruit of the Spirit does not prove that the Spirit is at work in your life. And so Paul here is saying, in chapters 12 and 13, he's saying, okay, look, people, stop being all preoccupied by the ability to speak in tongues or do demonstrate any other amazing ability of spiritual giftedness. No, 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 no. 
You want to be preoccupied with something? Be preoccupied with this. Be preoccupied with loving others. That is what the Spirit wants to accomplish in your life. Yes, by all means, exercise your gifts. All of the gifts, not just one. But see to it that you exercise those gifts with Christ-like love. Because honestly, if you care more about your gift, if you care more about the thrill that gift gives you when you exercise it, whatever it is, if you care more about that than the people you are supposed to serve with your gift, then you're completely missing the point. So that's chapters 12 and 13. And Paul's still not done because there's still more to the problem. It's not just that they're acting in unloving ways. And it's not just that they made too much out of one gift as if it was the only gift that mattered. They also misused the gift itself when they gathered together, and their misuse of the gift hindered their worship. So here in chapter 14, Paul is writing to correct that problem. And you might think, well, what's that got to do with us? Because when we gather together, you may have noticed, we don't have people speaking in tongues in our assembly. Well, here's how it relates to us. In correcting the Corinthians' messed up worship, the Spirit of God, through the Apostle Paul, gives us very valuable guidance for our worship gatherings. I mean, what should we be doing? What should we be doing when we gather together? What should we emphasize? What should you be praying for and earnestly desiring to happen when we gather together for worship? All right, let's look. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 19. So it's, uh, it's a little long, so stay engaged. Here we go. <laughs> Verse 1. Now, he's just finished chapter 13 and its emphasis on love. So he says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the spirit or in his spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, or I think a better translation, I wish you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. Even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not, if they don't give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. 
There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I don't know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret, for if I pray in a tongue... My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit or in your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, in the assembly, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. All right, here's how I'll summarize what he's saying. When we gather together for worship, we need truth Truth that grows us more than experiences that excite us. We need truth from God that grows us more than we need experiences that excite us. Why do I say that? Because truth from God has a power to accomplish things that amazing experiences do not. Truth from God has power to accomplish things that amazing experiences do not. Paul here draws a contrast between the spiritual gifts of prophecy and speaking in tongues and says that prophecy is far better when the church gathers together because prophecy builds up all the listeners while tongues builds up only the speaker. And once again, we are reminded what spiritual gifts are for. They are for building up the church, building up the body of Christ. They are not simply for our private enjoyment. Yes, enjoying worship is a great thing. I'll talk more about that near the end. But God wants us to delight in him authentically. But that is not meant to be an individual experience that others don't get to share. When we gather together, worship is meant to be a group experience. And if you're doing things that other people cannot understand or participate in, it's not helpful. It's actually distracting. Prophecy can grow a group of believers speaking in an unknown language cannot. I have a quote from John Piper on this. He says, quote, Paul is not rejecting the gift of tongues, but he is putting something way above it in the Christian assembly. He is saying that edification, that means spiritual growth, 
Edification comes not by amazement at miracles. Edification comes by the understanding of God. That's why verse 19 says that five intelligible words, that is five words you can understand, that help you understand God are better than a thousand, actually it says 10,000 unintelligible words that make you tremble with amazement. So being able to speak in a language that you, you didn't learn you just gain that ability from God's spirit. Being able to speak in a language you don't understand, that is clearly an amazing experience. I personally don't have that ability, but if you do, and it's legit, wow, that's amazing. That's an exciting thing. But it can't do what the church needs when we gather together. Truth from God that we can all understand has a power to accomplish things in our lives that exciting experiences do not. And I'm going to look at a couple of them from, from our passage. So I'm going to point out just two things that truth from God can do that can do far better than any amazing, wonderful, exciting experience. Okay? First, truth from God can change your life. Exciting experiences can't. Truth from God can change your life. Okay, so verse 3 says, the one who prophesies, that is, the one who proclaims truth from God, speaks to people for their upbuilding, that means their growth, their encouragement, and their consolation or comfort. Look at those three words. Upbuilding, growth, this is the one who prophesies, proclaiming truth from God, speaks to people for their upbuilding, their growth, their encouragement, and their comfort, their consolation. And I guarantee you need all three of those things to become the person God wants you to be. You need to be built up. You need to grow. You just do. You need to keep growing. Doesn't matter your age. You need to keep growing until you are as loving and courageous and forgiving and etc., 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 as Jesus. Or in the words of Ephesians 4.13, until you reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I'm talking about character here. Okay, so it's as if in God's house, he took the measurement of Jesus and put that mark on the wall, and we all need to measure up to that. That's why we need to grow. We need to grow until we're as loving and kind and courageous and everything else is Jesus. Okay. God's Word can do that. God's Word can bring about that growth in your life. And you're going to need encouragement to do that. What encouragement? The encouragement God gives us at His Word. What does He tell us? He promises He will grow us. He will complete the work that He began. He will accomplish His good purposes in your life if you trust Him. He will work all things together for your good. 
So you need encouragement, and then you need comfort. What do you need comfort for? When you blow it, when you stumble, when you fail, and when the brokenness of this world just crushes your heart. You need comfort. Where are you going to find that comfort? In an experience? In the truth that God gives us, the promises God gives us, that the one who died for you, that he will forgive your failures. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And he will one day come again and he will fix all the brokenness. He will make right every wrong. He will see to it that all of your suffering will work for your eternal glory and joy. Those promises will comfort you. It's only rock-solid truth that you can believe and build your life on that will actually end up changing your life. Exhilarating experiences, well, they're exhilarating. They're fun. They're great. I'm not speaking against them. But they don't have the power for lasting change. Why? Because experiences always fade. Have you ever heard of a mountaintop experience? Right? Why do we use that expression? Because when you come down off the mountain, it's back to life as usual, and the experience fades. Let me show you an example of this in the Bible. Book of Exodus. The book of Exodus describes amazing things. Amazing things that God did for the people of Israel to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. It talks about all his miracles that he did, incredible things, all the terrible plagues that he brought upon the Egyptians, and the grand finale, God parting the Red Sea so the Israelites could cross over on dry land and then closing the sea on top of the Egyptian army and wiping it out. Okay, so this verse, Exodus 14.31, that's just happened. They've just crossed the Red Sea and they've seen God wipe out the Egyptian army. All right, and it says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. I mean, that was an amazing demonstration of God's power. That was as exciting an experience as you could ever have, guaranteed. There's probably nobody in this room that's had an exciting experience, a demonstration of God's power bigger than that. All right? So surely, surely from that point on, the Israelites loved God faithfully, worshipped him passionately, obeyed him completely, right? That's what happened. It completely, that experience completely transformed them forever, right? Psalm 106, 21. They forgot God. They did. Those people who were at the Red Sea, they forgot God. Their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Verse 19, they made a calf, a golden calf in Horeb, and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. 
you got to be kidding me. What happened? The experience faded. They didn't change. Why not? Because they rejected the truth that God gave them that would have changed them. You have to know this. You have to know this. There is no event. There is no experience by itself that will transform your life. We've got to get this. You know, sometimes people treat reading the Bible, studying the Bible, listening to the Bible messages, revelation from God, they treat that, oh, that's boring, or that's hard work. I don't have time for that. Give me an experience. Give me something. A retreat, a worship service, a missions trip, a workshop, a revival meeting, some spiritual gift. There isn't one. There is no event, there's no experience that will bring about lasting change in your life unless, unless it motivates you to receive God's truth and believe it and trust it and change your thinking and your wanting. The truth of who he is. The truth of who he tells you you are. The truth of what he has done for you in the person of Jesus Christ. The truth of what he will do for you in the person of Jesus if you trust him. Romans 12, 1, uh, 2. Be transformed. Be transformed. Just do it. How? Look what it says. By the renewing of your mind. What renews your mind? Truth. Truth from God. Truth from God that you read. Truth from God that you hear and you cherish. And you remember. And you believe. Truth from God will change you when experiences won't. Second thing it can do. It can unify our worship. Unify our worship. So, verse 15. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit. I will pray with my mind also. I will praise, sing praise with my spirit. And I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks in your spirit, that is, in your spirit only, without your mind being engaged... How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? He can't participate. He can't join in. Unless we pray, unless we sing, unless we read scripture, unless we do that with truth that we can all understand, and say amen to, we can't worship together. We can't. We're just, we're just a bunch of individuals who might have something exciting going on inside of us, but it doesn't result in us worshiping God together. And maybe you think, well, okay, so does that really matter? 
Does it matter if we worship together? Well, you tell me. Romans 15, 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you, you all, to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, unified worship is a big deal to God. Say, why? Because, because it demonstrates, it displays the greatness of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice to take sinners who have all kinds of different backgrounds, maybe different ethnicities, different cultures, who don't even necessarily like each other, and in fact may be very hostile to each other, take all those sinful individuals and make them one family. To display the power of Jesus and his sacrifice to do that. Galatians 3.27, for all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. You want to have some fun, just go through the New Testament and find all the references you can to unity and oneness. You will be amazed. It is a big deal to God. And see, what happens then, if we don't worship as one, what do we do? We send the wrong message about Jesus. We say, in effect, well, we don't really know him. Or we don't really care about obeying him. Or, even worse, Jesus really doesn't have the power to unify us. That's a terrible message. That's not good. Okay, all right, so what will unify us? What will empower unified worship? Well, what if we all had some exciting spiritual experiences? Would that do it? Apparently not, because the Corinthians had all kinds of exciting spiritual experiences, and it did not unify them at all. It made them even more individualistic. They were all seeking these amazing spiritual experiences, like speaking in tongues, you know, saying things nobody else could understand, and it was cool. But that did not enhance unity. It, in fact, undermined it. Just think of it this way. If amazing displays of spiritual giftedness, if amazing displays of spiritual giftedness were the key to unified worship, the Corinthians should have been the most unified church on the planet, and they weren't. In fact, they were the opposite. They were full of conflict and division and selfishness and immaturity. The pursuit of spiritual excitement does not lead to unified worship. Well, what does? 
Look again at verse 19. Nevertheless, in church, in the assembly, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. In the context, he's saying, that's what we need. We need truth from God, not something we can't understand. And then look at the picture of worship in Colossians 3.16. Look at it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, you all, y'all, all y'all, you guys, you people, let the word of Christ dwell among y'all richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Okay, let's look at this. What is the word of Christ? It's the truth from God about Jesus. Okay, teach and admonish one another. With, with what? With the truth from God. What's in those psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that we sing? Truth from God, about God. Truth from God is the bones of worship. Truth from God is the bones of worship. Or let's put it another way. It's like the framing of a house. Without that framing, without that truth from God, it cannot stand. It cannot hold together. Truth from God unifies and empowers worship. Now, I want to avoid a potential misunderstanding. So if I don't say this, somebody's going to walk out here and say, Pastor Scott is totally against exciting experiences. He said they were bad. Did anybody hear that? Okay, put your hand down, because I didn't. I did not say that, and I'm not saying that. I'm not saying exciting experiences aren't valid. I'm not saying they're not important. And I am definitely not saying that worship shouldn't be emotional or engage our feelings. I'm not saying that because it should. Jesus said in John 4, 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. If worship, worship engages our spirit with the spirit of God, and if it doesn't, if our hearts aren't into it, it's not worship, at least not the kind God is looking for. So the point of this message is not that worship is just a mental thing. We all just sit stoically and passively listen to a bunch of words and just, you know, nod in agreement. No, no. Look at Colossians 3.16 again. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with what? Gratitude in your hearts to God. Worship must engage your heart. It must but it must also engage your mind. In fact, if it's going to engage your heart properly, it must engage your mind. We must worship in spirit and truth. Without truth from God, our worship is like a ship without a rudder. No direction. Totally vulnerable to getting blown off course. Think about it. Without truth from God we wouldn't even know who he is. 
how could we worship him? Without truth from God, we would not know how to be right with him. We would not know how to have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. We just wouldn't know. We've got to have truth from God. Look, I want us, I want us to experience all that God has for us. I want to experience his presence, his power in any way he wants to express it. But he will express it in experiences that line up with his truth. It's his truth when we receive it, when we believe it, when we stake our lives on it. It's his truth that will change our lives and empower and unify our worship. So let's get practical. How should this affect you when we're going to gather together for worship? A few ideas. First, prepare. Prepare. I don't know if you ever just kind of show up without thinking about it, but that's not a good idea. Prepare. Prepare. Sometimes preparation means getting to bed at a decent hour on Saturday night. But more than that, preparation, I think, is, is asking God for ears to hear. As Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Or asking God, there's another way to put it, to prepare your heart to receive his truth. Jesus told a parable about this. He, he talked about a sower, a, a farmer sowing seeds, and the seed, he said, represents the word of God, and the soil represents our hearts. And some seed grows and bears fruit, and others doesn't. Well, what's the difference? Because the seed is the same. It's the same word. The difference is the heart, the condition of the heart either receptive and fruitful or unreceptive and barren, fruitless. So Jesus finishes his parable by saying, therefore, consider carefully how you listen. How you listen is at least as important as which songs get picked, which prayers get prayed, which scripture gets read, and whether you like the speaker or not and find him interesting. In fact, I would say how well you listen is even more important. Second, participate. Participate. Join in. Okay. You know what? When we gather together like this, it is so easy for us to be consumers. It's so easy to be consumers. Because, you know, we rate everything, don't we? I mean... You're looking for a restaurant, you're looking for uh, a hotel, you're looking for some place to go. What do you do? You look at the ratings, right? How many stars did they get? We, ha we bring that mentality to our worship time. I give this song a three. I give that preacher a one and a half. I and we come as consumers. That's not participating. You're not an audience. Well, you are in one sense, but in another sense, you're not. You know what you are? You're worshipers. And you can worship by joining in, participating. Engage your mind and let that truth lead your heart. Third, expect. Come with an attitude of expectation that God has truth that he wants you to hear. And he wants you to hear it even if you think you've heard it before. Oh, I know this one. No, even if you've heard it before. Even if you don't like that speaker that much, 
Come with the expectation, God has something to say to me. I want to know what it is. Expect. And fourth, share. Share the truth with somebody else. Because that's how we really learn it. It's when we share it. <laughs> oh, goodness. I remember when I was in seminary and I would, there'd be something in a class and I'd be so excited to come home and share it with my wife. And I'd try to retell it. And she'd look at me like, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're saying. And it would make me so mad because I'm like, clearly, I do not understand this as much as I thought I did. Go back to class, ask questions, share it. Share it is a great way to find out if you're really learning it, if you got it. Let's pray together. Father, worshiping you is the greatest privilege of our lives. One day, we will stand in your presence and we will sing holy, holy, holy and we'll sing a bunch of other songs and we will worship you fully. Right now, Lord, we're, we're very imperfect at it. But I pray you'd be at work in our hearts and create in us this heart of anticipation and expectation and Lord, may we love your truth. May we love it. May we not just hear it and shrug it off. May we be doers of the word, not hearers only, who deceive ourselves. Thank you for giving us your truth. Help us hear it. Help us believe it. Help us live it. We pray in Jesus' name.